Stupid Book Club decided to step out of its comfort zone and take a day trip to the Carrizo Plain, a national monument that preserves a remnant of a vast grassland where antelope and elk graze and spring wildflowers bloom. It's an hour and a half's drive from Ojai. Well, the entrance to it is. Once in, you can drive for a bunch of other hours, much of it on rutted, unpaved roads to grab glimpses of the flora and fauna. The day we went, it was mostly flora. I'm chagrined to admit that for me, a few wildflowers go a long way. And for the record, they look a heck of a lot better from a distance than they do up close. So I grumbled a bit. Well, maybe more than a bit. Then we stopped for a picnic lunch. We set up tables and chairs overlooking a grand horizon, presenting a tableau like something out of a Jean Renoir movie. Passers-by stopped to say hello and take pictures. We laughed and gorged. A sweet reminder of what Stupid Book Club is really about. Friendship and the opportunity to relish it, however primitive the surroundings. Would have been cool to see an antelope, though. the story. Welcome back to the Townies podcast. I am Kim Maxwell, and I am a townie. I'm a townie who loves other people's stories. I teach a weekly writing and performance workshop here in my ridiculously small fishbowl of a town nestled in the foothills of Ventura County. And for 25 years, the raw and vulnerable musings of my brilliant and courageous students have sent me home filled with hope. Some of my beloved students are seasoned professionals. Some have never even been on a stage before. But there they are, up in front of a live audience, flinging themselves and their brand new words into the abyss. Their reward? They have been heard. They matter. Their words matter. And the audience? Well, they have just officially been granted permission to do the same. To go out there somewhere and take a big old risk. And that is the sacred exchange between terrified storyteller and gracious audience member. Permission. I love people's stories. Because stories are what connect us. This is the Townies Podcast. Welcome to the Neighborhood. Episode 20, I Am From. First up on the Townies podcast, Splenectomy, written and performed by Amanda Lesra. This world-traveling activist, poet, and passionate lover of life is a dedicated student of global humanities at Mills College and an all-around hardworking kind of gal. Miss you, Amanda. I have a long-standing relationship with hospitals, weekly blood tests, neurotic doctors, sloppy nurses, concerned-looking mothers, and stupid questions. <laughs> For example, when I was nine, I contracted appendicitis and had to miss a couple of weeks of school. My teacher asked, 
But isn't your appendix a useless organ anyway? You really couldn't keep up with schoolwork? My appendix exploded inside of me and required emergency surgery to vacuum the gangrene out of my intestinal cavities. So, no, I couldn't keep up with schoolwork. If I sound bitter and angry, it's because I am. If I sound bitter and angry, it's because throughout my childhood, there weren't many people that believed that there was actually something wrong with me. If I sound bitter and angry, it's because I am missing three organs. Appendix, gallbladder, spleen. Between the ages of nine and 13, I learned that betrayal feels like your stomach is full of cold pebbles. I learned that a particular kind of fear and self-doubt blossoms when you can sense people's skepticism when you tell them that you don't feel well. I learned that not all doctors take the same oath. I remember collapsing on the cobblestone streets of Morocco when I was five, unable to keep walking, unable to explain that I felt cloaked by bone-deep exhaustion. I remember endless summers watching my cousins play on the beach while I read in the shade. I remember being the kid that no one wanted on their team. She's just out of shape, my grandmother would reassure my mother. That's why she's always tired. You know, maybe if she lost some weight, we could put her on a diet. And they did. When I was 12, I started to complain about stomach aches and sharp pains in my upper right torso. After running a few tests, my doctor informed me that she discovered that I'd been lying all along. There was nothing wrong with me, she explained. I was trying to stay out of school by pretending I was sick. She also told me that my mother suffered from a condition called Munchausen syndrome by proxy, in which a parent intentionally makes a child sick in order to bring attention to themselves. Anyone who knows my mother understands that this woman did not need to use her kid to bring attention to herself. The doctor told me that social workers and psychiatrists were interrogating my mother in a room across the hall. According to them, we were both liars. I left the hospital in pain and untreated. My test results came back a month later. There is something wrong with you. There is a reason you've been exhausted since you were five. You have sickle cell anemia. Your spleen doesn't work. Oh, and your gallbladder doesn't either. We're going to take them both out. They made it seem like they'd just discovered something new after seven years of consistently reported symptoms. I was relieved to find out I was actually sick, not crazy, and I was furious at everyone who had made me doubt myself. At this point, I was barely an adolescent. I wanted to know what it felt like to fly up a flight of stairs, to run until my lungs burst, to eat a massive amount of fried food without finding myself doubled over in pain. I remember waking up in the pediatric intensive care unit after the six-hour surgery. I remember that my body felt like butchered meat softened by morphine. I remember looking up and finding myself surrounded by a dozen bleeding, burnt children. The little boy in the bed next to mine has third-degree burns all over his body. There are tubes of fluid sprouting from his skin, and his breathing sounds like scraping metal. I fall asleep listening to him rattle. I wake up a few hours later and see a neatly made empty bed next to mine. Nothing was quite the same for me after that. 
I felt like a huge part of my identity had simply dissolved in that moment. Yes, I had had an awful medical experience leading up to the surgery, but how could that matter when the fact is that I woke up and he didn't? I thought about him the first time I flew up a flight of stairs without losing my breath. I thought about him the first time I felt my body ache with exertion. I thought about him this morning when I felt my heart beat with energy and possibility instead of exhaustion. So, here I stand in front of you with my remaining organs. <laughs> Healthy, angry, bitter, but grateful. Really, really grateful. You were listening to Amanda Lesra. The Gray, written and performed by Kelly O'Mara. Though she has now relocated to Oakland, Kelly will always be a townie. A badass, poetry-slinging, baby-goat-obsessed, digital marketing-specializing townie. Gray. An endless stream of gray. Thoughts and dreams littering the ever-silver insistence of daily routine and its need for my constant attention. But with nowhere to go, lost in my mind, I wonder frantically where to find life's palette. How do you find the end of a rainbow when you're colorblind? The truth is, the world turned gray the day my mother left me. Before that, it was just too colorful. At home, each family dinner exploded and sent me crawling up our apartment stairs to hide under my covers, pull the covers over my face, and cry. It's a strange thing to see the two people you love most in the world trying to crush each other. Not that they were usually physically abusive. They used words like machetes, slicing into each other with the full force of their hurt and dis-ease. I don't remember when I started trying to outwit them, distract them, refocus their attention. Both of my parents smoked, and for some reason, by five years old, I'd learned that this could kill them. So one night, while they were fighting, I snuck away both of their boxes, each almost full, pulled out their cigarettes one by one, split them in half, and discarded them in the toilet. I think somehow I believe that this would make them stop both fighting and smoking. Instead, my father left in a heightened rage to get another pack, and the plan further imploded when he returned home with only a pack for himself and made my mother furious. Sometimes I tried being good. I would draw a scene in a book and color it in, replicating it nearly exactly. My mother would tell me how smart I was, how talented. When my dad got home, she'd present it to him, and his eyes would twinkle. Ten minutes later, he'd ask her for the $20 he'd given her, and when he gave back 15 it would start again. Kelly wanted a snack at 7-Eleven, she'd say, and I'd wish as hard as I could that I hadn't been angry, or hungry, that I hadn't been hungry. The simple truth is that no matter what I did, one parent blamed the other, and the cycle of abuse continued. So instead, I hid. I hid in the closet. I hid under my covers with an assembly of stuffed animals to comfort me. 
I hid in a trunk in my room, wondering if I'd learned what a coffin would feel like. I hid because I was less troublesome out of sight. But I wasn't always alone. Every night at bedtime, the arguing would cease and my mother would ease into my bedroom. She'd lie down next to me and read me a book or play one side of my favorite tape. She asked me how I was, what I was feeling, told me I was beautiful and smart and her little princess. I was six when my mother left. We'd been staying in a woman's shelter through the custody battle and the day the verdict was being announced, she was required to bring me to court. I was in a waiting room outside of the courtroom because I guess they don't think that a six-year-old should be present for a custody verdict. When court let out, I was surprised with the appearance of not my mom, but my grandmother, taking me by the hand and telling me I was going home with her for the summer. Something wasn't right. I knew what my parents were fighting for. My mom had held me through the night after each court session, saying that everything would be okay, that we would be together. But we weren't. I was leaving with my grandmother, and when we got to the car, my mom was waiting to say goodbye. In tears, she told me that everything would be okay and that we would be together soon. She hugged me, and I wondered why she was crying. My grandma told me we had to leave, that I had to get in the car and put on my seatbelt. And so I sat, powerless, staring out the back window and sobbing, waving at my mother who was getting smaller and smaller and eventually disappeared. I didn't see my mom again for 15 years. Gray, an endless stream of gray. See, the thing is, I'm not afraid to get lost in the gray. If anything, I've come to prefer it. It's comfortable. It's safe. But something was lost in it that I couldn't find. I couldn't touch. I couldn't put my finger on it. I just missed it every colorless day. But then I caught a glimpse of it, this beautiful, colorful little something lost in the busy. The thing that hides from pain and conflict, that has learned that if it can just burrow down deep enough, if it can only lose itself in shadows, it can maintain its beauty without ever risk being seen, heard, or touched, or worse even, unappreciated. See, over the years, I've taught myself to believe that everything I've just shared with you doesn't matter, that what was most important for survival was to be strong and confident. But it is not strong and confident to be afraid of being seen, to feel afraid of being judged a weak and broken woman when you admit that your mother left you feeling unimportant and unlovable. It's not strong to hide behind a career made of misused talents and misdirected beliefs borrowed from sick parents when there's passion dying inside of you, unexpressed. See, there's this beautiful little something inside of me, full of color and excitement. When she feels threatened or scared, she hides in a closet or in a trunk in her bedroom. She slips under her covers and shuts off her phone. She hides behind steely blue eyes and cold, controlled anger behind gray. My heart was broken before it was full grown and in mending built for itself a shield of gray. Lately it aches almost every day 
bursting nearly to the seams with love and boredom and excitement and frustration and every imaginable emotion. The thing is, I'm ready for it to break again, to reach the seams and burst open fully, so overwhelmed with life in full color that it brings me to my knees, gasping for breath, crying uncontrollably and telling stories at the top of my lungs, out in the open where anyone who cares to listen can hear. I want to have my fill of it, to explore, to travel, to live out an incredible adventure with my love and tear myself into a million pieces and books that scatter the globe, read by poets to children, so that they know that they are not alone, that they are loved, and that they can never be broken. That was Kelly O'Mara. And now, Shelby Figueroa, with the title track from her debut EP, High Wire. Stumbling up onto the stage, wondering why I'm here. I'm up in the air, and my heart is racing. eyes are covered quick with makeup I put on so thick I'm up in the air and my knees are shaking I'm on a high wire and I'm afraid of heights I'm on a high sight to see just don't you look at me i'm up in the air my voice is trembling i'm on a high wire and i'm afraid of heights i'm on
To learn more about the music and performers featured on the Townies Podcast, please visit thetowniespodcast.org. Closing out this week's episode, The People I Come From, written and performed by Carolyn Allen. A free-form dancer and contagious laugher, this brilliant, curly-haired, human rights, passionate, writer, professor, visual artist is nothing but pure delight to have in my life and on my stage. The people I come from are torn between helping other people and taking care of ourselves. <laughs> we are the social workers and teachers and psychologists and artists. We drive for 20 minutes and listen to a show on NPR about all the suffering of the Syrian refugees, the six-year-old orphans trying to make a living shining shoes on the streets of Beirut, the nine-year-old girls sold to older men by their families, and we have terrible feelings of guilt because we are not in those refugee camps in Lebanon taking care of these people, those children who are hungry and polite and missing their education. We are the people who fantasize about quitting our jobs, selling the house, and flying out there and being a teacher in the refugee camps, even though we don't speak Arabic or Syrian or whatever those people speak. We dream about learning the language on the job, communicating through hand gestures and smiles, starting out with art classes, helping them learn to see and draw and imagine beauty and calm, and giving them art supplies and books and telling stories to help them tell their own stories. Grim stories. The people I come from never feel good about being Americans because we have so much while other people have so little. And we know that our European forefathers, even if they weren't exactly slave owners and Indian killers, were the beneficiaries of slavery and genocide. We are fuck-ups in our own lives, or so we think, because we are powerless or our powers aren't recognized or maybe aren't even that useful. <laughs> we are waiting for clarity as to what to do next, what we ought to be doing. The world may be collapsing under our feet, but we'd feel better if we could buy a new pair of very fine shoes, <laughs> perhaps in a bright color, maybe green. The people I come from worked in mental institutions and prisons. They wanted to treat the weak, the poor, the dirty, the malformed, the people nobody else cared about. They went on marches for peace. They registered voters in the South. They worked on reservations. They believed in John and Bobby Kennedy. Martin Luther King was their hero. They swore if Goldwater became president, we'd all move to Canada. <laughs> they listened to Joan Baez and Pete Seeger saying, we shall overcome. They tried acid and marijuana, but preferred wine and bourbon and cigarettes. <laughs> or long hikes in the wilderness, carrying heavy backpacks and being forced to eat lizards and bugs for survival, anything to calm the pressure from within. Because we are high-strung people. <laughs> 
people I come from read old books and still love short stories by Chekhov and novels by Jane Austen. We listen to Bach and James Brown and Iggy Pop and Gamelon. We feel helpless in the face of Putin and the Tea Party and Ann Coulter and Sarah Palin and oh my God, Trump! <laughs> We can't believe these people actually exist. Hasn't mankind progressed beyond prejudice and hatred and tribal thinking and bullying, or shouldn't it have? And when we think about global warming and the melting of the polar ice caps and the disappearance of the last black rhino and all the delicate multicolored frogs and butterflies and birds, and oh my God, our brains almost explode. <laughs> And we need to stop looking at our email. <laughs> and definitely get off the news feed on Facebook. But sometimes we just can't resist it. It just makes us feel so bad. But so informed. And when we can't take any more information about all the terrible people saying and doing terrible things, we make ourselves a snack of toast and peanut butter and bananas. And we're pretty sure that if a nutritionist were to ask us what we were eating, they'd say it was healthy, even though it's not kale or quinoa or cauliflower. The people I come from are teachers and actors and artists and social workers, and people always tell us, you're really making a difference. <laughs> and we're so stuck on that kind of reassurance about our value in the world, if we don't get it every single day, we're pretty sure we may as well never have existed. <laughs> we don't make big splashes. We are not stars. We work for nonprofits. Our theaters are way off Broadway, like 3,000 miles off Broadway. Our colleges are small and underfunded. Our books are unpublished. We carry the manuscripts of our fathers, our grandfathers, and our great-grandfathers in crumbling boxes and manila envelopes and folders that have the word manuscript written on them in big, bold lettering, in letters we don't even recognize. It's like, who wrote this? <laughs> the people I come from have gone heavy into religion or witchcraft. <laughs> They've gone to seances and experienced travel on the astral plane. <laughs> They've found water with divining rods. They've chased treasure buried with a Ouija board. They've tried every self-help program from Est to Shakti Gawain. They light candles, rub crystals, read tarot cards, make circles of salt, throw pennies out the door. Good luck! <laughs> we are of them, but feel freakishly not of them. We believe in science. We are skeptical. We have no truck with faith healers or pet psychics or astrology, but we'd like to. <laughs> it just doesn't seem, well, you know, it's like Santa Claus or that person your husband is sleeping with and everybody knows it before you do. And you end up feeling like a fool. But we would like some guidance. We'd like some guidance soon. We pay for counseling, even when we feel smarter than our psychologist and think <laughs> her husband is an insufferable bore. 
we're on serotonin reuptake inhibitors because we believe our brain chemistry is the reason we're feeling so fragile and powerless and quick to cry or yell something unbelievably mean at the people we love the most. We don't take a position on nature versus nurture. We're pretty sure it's both. Some parts of the people I come from think they're better than other parts. Our Yankees think they're better than our Portuguese. Our Portuguese think they're better than our Germans. Our Germans think they're better than our Italians. And our Italians know they're better than our Swiss. Our Swiss, they think they're better than everyone. And if personal wealth were a measure of virtue, they have a point. <laughs> the people I come from are not vegetarians, but we like animals. Sometimes we like them too much. We have been known to accumulate Siamese cats and chihuahuas. One woman in our family was called the poopy old cat lady by neighborhood children after she'd accumulated 24 Siamese cats. That woman was my mother. We share beds with our animals. We'd rather kiss a cat or a dog than admit they give us asthma. We may be covered in fur, but we feel better than clean. We feel loved. The people I come from don't marry our college sweethearts. We marry other people's college sweethearts. The only marriage that's sacred is our most recent. Sometimes our marriages have included three people, sometimes four. We have a history of mental illness that took my father three handwritten pages to elucidate. We have collected husbands and wives and mistresses and paramours, children by all of them, but what we've really collected is shoes and t-shirts, novelty dishcloths and aprons. Trashy plates from the Franklin Mint. Leather-bound <laughs> leather books with gold lettering, hand-me-down brown furniture, old photographs and disintegrating albums, love letters, journals, transcriptions, pleas for money, expense accounts from 1956, recipes from the Berkeley Co-op, and hand-crocheted toilet paper cozies. <laughs> There's a photo of one of us shaking hands with Eleanor Roosevelt, and another one of us smiling as she receives a General Electric four-year scholarship <laughs> to the Ivy League college of her choice. That, too, was my mother. Apparently, it's a short road from Ivy League to poopy old cat lady. People I come from have been peasants and something close to aristocrats. Our people crossed the ocean on boats to break soil in New Jersey. They ran bars and brothels in Manhattan when Manhattan was the Wild West and they called it New Amsterdam. They were deported back to England for mouthing off to the Puritans and selling liquor to Indians. They owned farms in Vermont, nearly starved during the Civil War, escaped lives as prison guards on the islands off Portugal, worked as janitors and maids and fishermen in New England, ran a school for girls on Lake Champlain, drove across America to study Rosicrucianism in Pasadena, 
and to search for gold in the Mojave. Some of us invented a fuse that proved useful in the Second World War. Others of us took out a patent on a novel halo for those who wish to dress up as saints. <laughs> Some of us got into eugenics and had eight different children by eight different men. Some of us had none. As children, we've had a high rate of adoption. When we don't like our own family, we go find another. <laughs> As adults, we are spread across continents and never see each other. We are the end product of much enthusiastic copulation and extravagant dreaming. The people I come from suspect the solution to any problem is to get another degree or work a little harder. But right now, we're having a hard time just getting out of bed. The people I come from are teachers and social workers and artists and psychologists. We'd like to save the children and the animals and the polar ice caps, but we're stuck in traffic. A big rig just collided with an SUV on the 101, and the road is covered in chicken feet and beaks. <laughs> our kids are spending too much time playing video games. Our husbands are sick. Our wives are leaving us. Our boss sends us scary emails. Our breasts ache, and we are losing our voices. The people I come from leave this world with sadness, fear, and regret. Some of us look forward to an afterlife or a reincarnation, anything but an actual end. Our existence is a miracle, and yet it all seems like so much fuss. These moments of high joy and hope and worry and despair, these medicines and exercises, meditations and conversations, our loves, our hates, our misunderstandings, our losses, so much fuss. My people, who are these people? Who am I? I kind of know where I've been. Now I'd like to know where to go. Carolyn Allen. That was spectacular. I'm from here. Here's the story. Please join us every other Tuesday for a new round of freshly minted stories. I am Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio, and we teach people to launch their stories loudly and unapologetically into the world, to laugh more, risk more, and have bigger lives. The Townies Podcast is co-produced by Lily Brown, Asa Larmonth, and Ken Eros. Studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Hallman at the Congress House. The Townies podcast is in part made possible by a generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai, a small town with big stories. You can find out more about us at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. Just as a safety, but I think we have it. Thank you. Really great. Yeah.
Can you work poop in there somewhere? Just throw <laughs> just randomly just say poop. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't. I don't work blue. <laughs>